On this episode of Business Interrupted. You have to build coalitions. You have to build solid networks because apart from those networks, it's going to be difficult for you in many ways to just pick up that phone and reach out to a partner and say, hey, I need your assistance, especially if that assistance is needed during the course of a disaster where you're meeting that person for the first time. Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellan Solutions, we're learning from the world's best leaders so you can be ready for whatever comes next. I'm your host, Cheyenne Marling. As a BC practitioner, I've been fascinated by the aviation industry for a long time. The size and the scope make disruption a frighteningly real possibility. Yet, for our guests, planning and preparation enable them to maintain continuity. In this episode, I'm excited to sit down with two experts in aviation industry resilience. Andrew Velasquez, first Deputy Aviation Commissioner for the Chicago Department of Aviation, and Justin Pierce, Emergency Management Director for Los Angeles World Airports. In our conversation, you'll hear their insights on building relationships and networks, as well as how to effectively conduct risk exercises when tens of thousands of people are involved in your operations. To start, let's hear how people in their positions might work together, even though they work for different organizations. Emergency management as a profession is probably still emerging, if you will, at airports. Obviously, there's the realization now that there is a need, based on the threat landscape, to have emergency management professionals leading emergency management programs at our, you know, large and medium and even small hub airports. There's an emergency management association that is for airport emergency managers are starting to see the recognition of the importance of it. Part of it would be building those coalitions and those networks to determine how we can have standardization across the board with regard to emergency management programs at airports. So we want to make sure that there's continuity, that there's standardization. So that's obviously critically important for developing these types of synergies across the airport community and industry. We would likely work together. I mean, of course, if there were any sort of threats that would be germane to the airport environment that would affect potentially airports across the country, obviously there would be collaboration, coordination, calls, maybe perhaps if there was a need to support another airport with resource requests or requirements, that would be another reason why we would work together. But I think primarily it's working together in a collaborative fashion to understand each other's programs and to help each other build programs that are standardized and really to ensure that we're keeping emergency management at the forefront of preparedness at our airports because it's critical. Airports are small cities in essence, and so we deal with a large variety of the same types of incidents and events that other large cities would have to contend with. And so making sure that we have the appropriate plans uh, in place, I like to say from our perspective, uh, risk-informed plans based on the threat matrix that would affect us at our airports 
So there's a lot of reasons why airports would collaborate with one another. From an operational perspective, what they call irregular ops, we would be obviously, if there's diversions and things of that nature, where you have large amounts of passengers that might need to receive assistance or maybe even perhaps sheltering, we would work together, the airports, the departing airport, the arriving airport. Those are things that we would be doing together. We've worked with other airports in the past with regard to you know, evacuation of individuals coming from hurricane-prone regions. There's just a whole lot that we've done to support each other from a resource requirements perspective and to work together to establish, so to speak, standardization of, of the requirements that are necessary to build effective emergency management programs. Andrew had a couple of really good points there. One, emergency management as a profession is still new and evolving in the airport environment. Previously, the type of emergency management functions or responsibilities usually fell upon airport operations or the local police department or local fire department. Now you'll see airports across the country, especially the large hub and medium hub airports that have really adopted and began to hire emergency management professionals. In terms of collaboration, before incidents or anything, it's a very tight-knit community and we're constantly sharing, asking um, each other questions and best practices. I think just last week, I shut an email out to 17 different airports about a problem I was having here at LAX and wanted to get some perspective about how other airports were doing it. And within a matter of an hour, I'm getting responses back with a lot of great input. So we're, it's a very supportive community. And I think that everyone needs to reach out. And if you can't find a solution in-house, there are folks out there in that same industry who are willing to help out and you know, never be afraid to ask for a different perspective on items. I want to focus on some of the events that you've had to manage in your career. So Andrew, starting with you, what's one event or something that came to mind and really that really challenged you as a leader? That's a fantastic question. I've had a, a quite a few events that I've had the responsibility of managing from an incident command perspective. I would say one of the events that comes immediately to mind is probably when I was the state director of emergency management for Illinois, we were facing the forecast of a catastrophic flooding event that was very similar to the flooding event that we had faced in 1993. And it was an event that had impacted the communities, I would say along a 280 mile stretch of the Mississippi River. And we were facing a very similar event in 2008. And one of the things that I think as emergency managers, we have to be careful of is is building faulty assumptions into our thinking or building faulty assumptions into our planning efforts. And when you proactively reach out to communities to say, hey, you know that this flooding event is coming. Are you guys prepared? Do you have your plans in place? Do you have your resources that you need? Oftentimes you'll get from emergency managers, the answer is yes. And that's not to say that as the state emergency manager, I wasn't trusting people, but I think as Reagan would say, you want to trust and verify. And I had to make the decision early on is do I proactively go out to these communities and have sit downs with them to ensure that they actually do have their plans in place and just to ensure face-to-face -face, if there are any resource requirements that they might have that we could start facilitating those resource requirements even before the floodwaters hit these communities. And I have to tell you that it was probably one of the best decisions that I had made 
to actually go forth and do that. And I would say a week before the floodwaters actually came and impact that 280 mile stretch of the Mississippi River, we actually took our state helicopter, flew out to all of these communities where they had their own emergency managers and sat down with them and discussed their plans, their requirements. Many of them, you know, needed resources, needed assistance. We were able to facilitate that early on. And because of that, we were able to save a number of communities from just being totally destroyed and inundated by floodwaters. And I think for me, it was a great lesson learned because number one, you can't always assume that people have preparedness plans in place. That's number one. I think secondly, it speaks to the importance of having a sense of urgency and making sure that you're proactive in your efforts to engage communities and people to make sure that everyone is on the same page from a unity of effort perspective to respond to a crisis. And for me, that was a defining moment because if I would have decided against that, I think the outcome, you know, of that disaster response and the recovery effort could have been quite different. But I would say that our recovery efforts were tremendous. We oftentimes say this in in the emergency management arena, you don't get judged on how well you respond, you get judged on how well you recover from the event because everybody's watching. And so from my perspective, that was a catastrophic flooding event but we were able to mitigate a lot of the potential damage and save a lot of lives as a result of the proactive steps that we took. Justin, how about you? What was the turning point that you want to highlight? I can't think of one that kind of stands out as that turning point, but when I look back at all the various incidents and events that I've been a part of, one of the things that that strikes me is just the massive level of improvement that we've made as a nation, as states, as counties and as local jurisdictions in our response and recovery efforts from when I first started my career to we are now. If you go back, which I often do (laughs) for some odd reason, and review the 9-11 commission report and reviewing the Hurricane Katrina after action report and Hurricane Sandy and these different events, and you look at those after actions, you see some commonalities that still are common between those. But the changes in those corrective actions we have to make now are so minute compared to where they were 10, 15, 20 years ago because of just how professionalized the industry as a whole has gotten and the capabilities that we have through grant programs and training and planning and exercises and just the experience of going through these incidents and creating this large eco response system has been quite incredible. So now the after action reports that I see were so nitpicky on getting things absolutely perfect. And that is such a joy to be a part of when you're fighting over this little minute thing that you want to correct. And just looking back now on all the different incidents and the corrective actions that came out of those, the items that are coming in the more recent ones are so small and minuscule to where we were 15 or 20 years ago because of the new capabilities that we've built and sustained as an industry, it's really quite impressive. I just think it really speaks to how emergency management has truly evolved into the respected profession that it is today. I mean, if you think about back in 2004, when I transitioned into emergency management, you hardly saw a degree program out there on emergency management. Today, you look, there's a plethora of 
degree programs in emergency management, undergrad, master's degree programs. I mean, it's amazing how the discipline itself has evolved into a really respected profession. Obviously, there's been so many changes within the aviation industry from a perspective of emergency management. Thinking about COVID, both of your respective airports, air travel did not shut down. You were still up and running. And I want to take a moment to just get an understanding of how COVID impacted your airport. So I'm going to start with you, Andrew. Initially, when we started hearing about COVID, I think there was obviously a lot of mixed messaging going on with regard to its impact and how impactful it would be on cities, including the aviation industry and, and then you know, in some of the earlier stages of the event. I mean, there was so much information that was going around. And so for us at O'Hare, not having a lot of concrete information to really go off of initially, what we decided to do, our posture was just to as my old boss, Craig Fugate at FEMA would say, just to go big, right? And that meant immediately in the early stages, I want to say in, in mid-January, just before things started escalating, we opened up a strategic operations center and just brought in all of the key stakeholders that would have a role in the response to the pandemic. And we wanted to make sure that we were bringing in our airline partners, our, you know, local, state, and federal partners that were at the airport, obviously the Chicago Department of Aviation. And the reason why we wanted to have everybody working together in unison was because we didn't want people operating in silos. We wanted to have unity of effort across the board with regard to how we were going to together as an airport environment respond to this event and ultimately work toward recovery and reconstitution. So what we did was we immediately activated our center. We started discussing mitigation measures, right? What are those things that we need to ensure based upon our existing pandemic plan? And interestingly, in November of the previous year, we had exercised our pandemic influenza plan at the airport. So that was, I mean, the timing couldn't have been better. And so we were coming fresh off of that exercise, which allowed us to really jump right into to understand a lot of the requirements that would have to be implemented. So looking at things like masking, social distancing markers, plexiglass, hand sanitizer, and then the biggest one for us was continuity of operations, right? And so it was like, okay, if you know that the potential exists where you can lose a, a pretty significant portion of your workforce, especially since you have to keep your airports open, what are the steps that we need to take to ensure continuity of operations and who are going to be those points for every section, not just within the CDA, but also our stakeholder partners? What are they doing to ensure continuity of operations from their perspective as well? And, and so making sure we had unity of effort with regard to continuity of ops was big for us because we did start eventually over time, we did start losing personnel. And so we had to figure out, okay, how are we going to sustain operations as we're starting to lose personnel due to being out with the infection? So for us, it was immediately establishing a strategic operations cell, if you will, ensuring that we were having strong collaborative partnerships. Every other day, we had a stakeholder call to ensure that we were communicating all of the actions that were being taken by us through the strategic cell 
to ensure that our stakeholder partners, our employees, and even our passengers felt that they were coming to an airport that was safe, where they felt secure, where they didn't feel like there was the potential to get COVID-19. And so we had to, what we had to do was we had to instill confidence in the traveling public. And so we did that through the strategic planning cell. We did that through all of our mitigation efforts. We did that through all of our regular stakeholder calls. And then concurrent to all of that, we started developing our recovery reconstitution plan because we knew that there's significant overlap between response and reconstitution. And so we needed to make sure that as we were working the response, we were already thinking about how we were going to bring things back to full operation, so to speak. And so as, as we started to see an increase in passenger volumes and all these things like this, what are we going to continue to do to make sure that we can instill confidence in the traveling public? So for us, it was transitioning eventually from response to reconstitution. And the beauty of the reconstitution task force that we created is that it's still continuing and it's now establishing a template for any other types of events that we might face at the airport where there's a long protracted, if you will, response and recovery effort. So those are some of the things that we did at both O'Hare and Midway airports to, to work toward the mitigation of the impacts of COVID-19. And how about you, Justin? Anything that was an aha moment that you didn't expect in keeping operations up and running, again, within the ecosystem of the two airports? When I look back at COVID, I mainly go to, to when it started, which was January of 2020, at least for us here at LAX, when we were selected as one of the first like nine or 11 that all passengers that had traveled through were flying from Wuhan were being funneled into. I believe that the White House made the announcement on a Friday when these travel restrictions and sort of the, this funneling process was going to begin. And on Monday, we had to go live with it. And I believe that Sunday was the Super Bowl. So we had a weekend to plan and get ready for this operations that was new. And as a result of that, we had to activate our emergency operations center for a week and bring in our partners from the state, from the city, and then those partners here at our footprint to really figure out how that operation was going to take place to ensure that those passengers were quickly screened and then transported to their quarantine location. That was sort of our introduction into COVID. And then from there, and it's been well documented about the massive uh, impacts that COVID has had across the entire aviation industry. And we were no different feeling those from our passenger loads to just all of the different mandates that came trickling in from county, from the state, from our local health department, maintaining those ultimately. So as Andrew mentioned, the public and our passengers were confident that our airport was safe to move through. So you bring up a good point about screening and all of those passengers coming through LAX. I mean, obviously, that's one of the primary airports that anyone traveling from Asia is going to go through, right? I once, 10 years ago, I cannot remember if it was during the swine flu or H1N1, but it was one of those. And I happened to be traveling through Hong Kong. I was going there for business. And I distinctly remember I had to walk through something that took my temperature as I approached it. 
And that day, just from traveling, I just felt a little bit worn down. You know, I wasn't sick, but I thought, oh my gosh, if I have a temperature and I'm stranded in Hong Kong, I'll be devastated. I'm curious to know, has there been any discussion about putting forth any type of screening at that level of advancement? I don't know what Hong Kong's doing anymore. I haven't been there you know, for the last 10 years, but I remember at that point going, this is surreal. And I never thought again, we'd have COVID where it impacted the world as it did, right? But I'm curious to know from a screening standpoint, is that anything that's discussed or anything that's ventured or, or offered? I think with any disaster or emergency, there comes innovation and new ways to operate uh, more effectively and safely. COVID and this global pandemic was no different. Throughout the entire duration of the incident, uh, we were constantly experimenting with new technologies to help improve the passenger experience at our airports, which included thermal body scanning at one of our terminals, whereas passengers entered into the terminal, going to the ticketing gate, and even unbeknownst to them, they walked through a, a thermal scanner. And if that scanner showed that that individual was running a, a temperature, they were flagged and, and pulled aside and were noted, hey, we're showing that you have like a 102, 101 degree fever. That's consistent with one of the symptoms of COVID. You should, you know, you might want to, you know, reconsider your travel plans as a result of this. So there was all sorts of different technology innovations that we tried to uh, experiment with to ultimately find the best solutions to keeping passengers safe. That's interesting because if you think about, as I mentioned, 9-11, that changed the whole airport screening process. And every event has impacted our industry as a whole. When we think about planning and recovery and just being ready. Looking back, as you've developed as a professional within the industry, what piece of advice would you give a young professional who's coming into the industry or maybe perhaps something you wish you would have known then that you know now? I, I think the biggest piece of advice to someone who is entering into the emergency management field is to work absolutely obsessively at mastering the craft of emergency management. There's just so much to it now. Just become obsessive with all the different components of emergency management. Really learn how to develop your planning skills. Really master the craft of designing effective exercises. Learn how to facilitate uh, really difficult conversations with multiple stakeholders to build consensus and find solutions to really complex problems. Really take the time and not only understanding the fundamentals, but mastering the craft at each of those specific components so you can become a, a well-rounded emergency manager. A jurisdiction or a company is confident that they can, you know, grab you and pluck you in anywhere and you'll be successful. The difference between being task-oriented versus relationship-oriented. In this profession, in order to be successful, in order to achieve successful outcomes, you have to build coalitions. You have to build solid networks because apart from those networks, it's going to be difficult for you in many ways to just pick up that phone and reach out to a partner and say, hey, I need your assistance, especially if that assistance is needed during the course of a disaster where you're meeting that person for the first time. 
establishing coalitions, building relationships, building networks is going to be so critical to your success as an emergency manager because the ability to respond to crisis situations and to recover effectively all rests on your ability, not only to have a good execution, but also to have the ability to reach out to people from a relationship perspective to help you bring the bear those resources that are necessary to help in a crisis. I'm wondering when you have to go through and exercise your plans or test different scenarios, you have so many different players within the airport. How do you go about exercising and bringing in all those different players within your large ecosystem? As a FAA Part 139 airport at LAX, we're required to conduct a full-scale exercise every three years where we do have to bring in all of these partners. That is the end of a three-year cycle in which hopefully during that period, we were doing smaller, more targeted exercises, looking at very specific capabilities. And we put those and we build those up over time um, before we go into full-scale exercises with all these various partners. One of the things that I see in this industry and when we do large exercises is they get a little too big and there's too many different components and there are too many objectives to accomplish effectively in the time allotted for the exercise. So we don't get a chance to really peel back that onion to really explore how certain processes or procedures would work ultimately to demonstrate and validate our response and recovery capabilities. So I think it's important when you look at exercises to really, really like clear, uh, simple objectives and to really give the players an opportunity to test their skills and knowledge and understanding to solve problems, to validate whether or not how effective certain capabilities are. So my advice would be to focus on certain components of your plans and not try to put them all together each and every single exercise. For example, Maybe just focus one exercise on alert and warning, another exercise on operational coordination, and the third exercise on situation assessment. And then for the fourth one, put all those together. I, I think we missed that step, which is why a lot of times it's become more of a demonstration of capabilities where they're so planned in advance, we're not really challenging our players. Take that tactical pause to really drill down and just focus on individual components and build those up over time. How about the training and awareness? You're working off a very large ecosystem. So, you know, how do you go about that training and awareness across the community within the airports? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you're right. I mean, we have between both airports, 55,000 badge employees. And so, I mean, obviously we want to make sure that we're developing this culture of, of safety and preparedness and security. And so, one of the things that we, we did was we developed training videos that are a requirement for anyone who's going to be credentialed at the airport. And so we created an active threat video that is a requirement. We created an emergency evacuation video that's a requirement. And we also created an emergency preparedness video for all of our employees. And so all, every single employee has to take these training modules at the time of their ID renewal. So whether it's they're a new employee for the first time or they're renewing it after a year. And so they have to see these videos 
and show that they've actually completed them. So that helps out by sort of creating that culture of awareness, of preparedness, and the things that, you know, that we would do as an emergency management public safety operation if we had to activate for one of these types of scenarios. Much like what Justin mentioned, we are also by the feds with regard to Part 139, and so we have to conduct these triennial exercises as well. But what we've also done is we've adopted the FEMA Thyra process and so we've conducted threat and hazard assessments for both airports and identified those scenarios that are germane to both airports. And then we conduct scenario-specific exercises and drills consistent with that Thyra for both airports. So that way we're getting everyone involved. And most of our airline partners have emergency managers and business continuity managers that work in their respective operations. So we bring those folks to the table. And then they, in turn, go back and train their personnel the very same things that they learned and participated in with our exercises. So we keep that cycle going consistently. So that way there's that reinforcement, if you will, of the actions that need to be taken in a crisis situation. Andrew, how can listeners find you? I'm on LinkedIn. That's number one. But also, if, if folks want to reach out to me, they can email me at my City of Chicago email address, which is Andrew. A-N-D-R-E-W dot Velasquez, V like in Victor, E-L-A-S-Q-U-E-Z, at cityofchicago dot O-R-G. And Justin, how would our listeners find you? I would encourage anyone, if you're coming through the L.A. area and flying through LDX, shoot me a note. I would love to go sit down and have coffee with you and let's talk EM shop for a little bit. It's one of my favorite things to do. You can uh, reach me at my email address, which is J Pierce, and that's P I E R C E at L A W A dot org. I am also on LinkedIn. Uh, social media is for me and my private for my friends. I don't do that as much as I probably should, but please reach out. I'm happy to chat, happy to learn something new and talk emergency management. I think that's where my best ideas come from is from these kind of off-the-cuff conversations. Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Cheyenne Marling for this leader's episode. To get more insights and resources, check out the show notes or head over to castalongbc.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.